<laughs> the first time. It's okay. And we have not done this one. Keep. Good morning. If you're a visitor with us this morning, a guest, we want to let you know that we are glad that you're here today. And if, uh, if you're joining us online, we are also pleased uh, that you've had the opportunity to worship with us and that we get to worship with you. Um, as mentioned a couple of times this morning, we're working through the book of Deuteronomy. This is actually our second, technically third sermon in this series. On graduation Sunday, we kind of jumped ahead towards the end of the book, and we talked a little bit about... Um, the idea of um, God and his, his provision for us, the way in which he sets before us choices that we might make. And he encourages us, Moses does, to choose life. Instead of choosing the other things that might be laid at our feet, to choose life. And uh, then we, we spent a little bit of time last week looking at the beginning of Moses's first sermon and some of the encouragement that he gives to the Israelite people as he is beginning the process of saying goodbye. And so this morning, we're kind of continuing on from there. And I, I want to look at the idea that Moses introduces here of a faithful God that serves an unfaithful people. This is uh, actually a, a central theme of the book of Deuteronomy, but it's also a central theme, really, of the Old Testament. If you look through the Old Testament, something that you'll notice over and over and over again is that Israel is somewhat unfaithful in the calling that God has given to them. God is continually faithful to the Israelite people, but, but the Israelite people again and again and again struggle to live in the way that God has called them to live. And Moses, in his forethought, his understanding, his own wisdom, begins to preach to the people a warning about what will happen. See, Moses, Moses is a prophet. The Israelite people referred to Moses as a prophet. Moses was also in some ways like a de facto priest for a period of time until they had established the priesthood in Israel. Moses, in many ways, was sort of the king of Israel. While God was their ultimate king, Moses was the one who made judgments and adjudications before the people. A lot of the law that is recorded is Moses taking the law that God had given and applying it to specific instances, specific cases, and the Israelite people taking that and saying, this is a good judgment. This is, in fact, the correct judgment, and we will live by this judgment. Now, Moses' intention is not for him to be the maker of the law, but for him to be the interpreter of the law, for him to be able to provide wisdom for Israel in how they apply what God has offered to them. And so this morning, as we, we look at the teachings of Moses, I want us to think very carefully about the heart that underlies everything that's going to come after in this book. This morning, I want you to, to read with me uh, what you're going to see up on the screen here in just a second. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them. Notice that he's got statutes and rules, right? And there's this other word, teaching. When we read in the Old Testament the word law, there's a number of different words that might be translated to mean 
or to, translated as law in the New Testament, uh, not New Testament, in our English language. I should be really clear. Hebrew has lots of different words that we translate as law in English. There's mitzvah, there's Torah, there's, there's uh, all of these little nuances that exist between them. And then there are the, the ideas of um, adjudications. Again, a taking of a particular mitzvah or Torah and the process of saying, this is how we now apply this. Torah, in many cases, would actually be better translated as teachings. They're instructions. They're guidance or wisdom offered. Mitzvah might actually be understood better as a part of a covenant. I keep these things as a recognition of the promise that these things allow me to tap into, to be a part of. When we read the Old Testament law, for the Israelite people, it was not just a set of commands. In keeping these laws, these mitzvah, these Torah teachings, they were recognizing a covenant that had been made. Now, are there a lot of mitzvah and Torah teachings that are specifically moral teachings? Absolutely. There's a lot of things that we read in the Old Testament that are laws for the Israelite people that have a lot to do with our moral and, and uh, ethical practice in life. But there are a lot of laws, a lot of mitzvah, that are intended just to maintain a recognition of the covenant that God has made with his people. There is nothing particularly moral about observing the Passover. You are not a more righteous person because you've done it, but you are probably deeper in your relationship with God for having done it. In keeping the Passover, in observing the festivals and the, the, the uh, ordinances that God had given to the Israelite people, they remembered and grew in their relationship with God. These festivals, these ordinances, these practices that were built into the, the calendar of Israel, they were not necessarily moral teachings, but they were very much to shape the character of an individual. And so as we read this this morning, Moses begins by saying, remember these ordinances. He wants us to remember the moral law as well, but he's really concerned that Israel, in not keeping the law, will forget. That is the key this morning in everything that we're going to talk about. Moses doesn't want the people to forget. And so we read these, these statements from Moses, and he, he says this particular phrase a couple of times here, only take care, or maybe your translation says, be careful. Only take care. Have caution. Be aware of what you are doing, lest you forget. If you take a look there at the context in verse 9, only take care and keep your soul diligently lest you forget. And what is it that they might forget? The things that your eyes have seen. Now I want to be clear here that uh, right now Moses is telling them what you have seen. I want you to remember. In a few moments he's going to say, I want you to remember what you have not seen. 
These are two very different ideas, but they're central to the understanding that the Israelite people must have about the purpose of the law. You see, what you have seen for the Israelite people are the works and wonders of the God that they serve. Listen to some of these things that he says here. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. How on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach them to their children. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice, and he declared to, his covenant, declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone, and the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you the statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. So hear those one more time. Remember what you saw. Remember what you heard, the experience that you actually had, the ways in which God's direct interaction with you as a people impacted you. He called you near to him so that you could hear his voice. He wrote down the law for you that you would know the covenant law, the Ten Commandments. He gave me teachings for you that you might practice them in the land which he was going to give you. Don't forget what you've seen. Now Moses has already walked them through the entire history of Israel from the time of of Egypt until the time where they are about to enter the land. He's reminded them of the crossing of the sea. He's reminded them of the standing at Sinai. He's reminded them of the water from the rock. He's reminded them of the manna from heaven. He's reminded them that the land that they were given to possess is in fact a good land and that it's been affirmed by members of their own community that God was truthful in saying these things. They've seen and heard an awful lot over the 40 years of provision that God has given to them. These individuals have even encountered battle victorious over their enemies without really being a military fighting force. In fact, one of the most important things to recognize about the Israelite people at this point in time is that all the fighting men of Israel have died. They are gone This is a non-military unit of people. And God says, everything I've done for you, I want you to remember. Moses' words to the Israelite people are God's affirmation that he has done wondrous things in their midst. Now, as I pointed out, he moves forward. He says, therefore... Watch yourselves very carefully. That's verse 15. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Well, why? 
You already told us to watch ourselves carefully or to remain careful because of the things that we have seen. What are we supposed to do now? Watch yourselves very carefully since you saw no form. In the first case, there's a temptation to say, you know, we're not really sure what the good work of God is that we would follow him. We're, we're not entirely positive of what God has done for us. Now, for a, a group to wander in the wilderness for 40 years and not have their clothing and sandals wear out, that's a pretty miraculous thing in and of itself, on top of all the other stuff that they've encountered. Every one of these people has literal evidence of the care and provision that God has provided for them. There's a danger in saying, we're not really sure what God has done for us. But Israel has already shown their ability to forget who has done for them. He wants them to understand it is not some calf of gold. It is not some bronze fish god. It's not a human being who has done these things for you. And so now he, he reiterates one of the Ten Commandments. He says, Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire, beware, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves. So it's possible to forget that God has done something for you, but you know what else you might end up doing? You might attribute the good that God has done for you poorly. you might decide, and it's not this invisible God up in heaven who has done for me the things that have been done. It's the gods of Canaan. Or better yet, it's, it's this Moses guy, and as soon as he's gone, everything is over, and Moses is highly aware of his impending death. He's already been told, you will not enter the land, they're going in, you're going to die. It's important for the people to recognize it wasn't Moses, the form of a human being, that did these great things. It wasn't some serpent out in the wilderness that rescued them when they were bit by, by vipers. It was the God of all creation that rescued them. So you have the temptation to forget what God has done, and you forget to, uh, the temptation to forget who has done it. Both of these are absolutely essential for the Israelite people to move forward in a way that they're going to remain faithful to the God who has already proven his faithfulness to them. But we continue on. It says, Ask now of the days that are past. This is very much a remembrance passage here. If you take a look at verse 32, what we end up seeing is that Moses once again reminds the people to think back. And what he ends up telling them is this, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened. For ask now of the days that are past which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever Hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live. Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation? 
by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other beside him. Now, I want to be clear. This sounds a little bit like he's saying, don't forget the things that God has done for you. But what I want to point out here is that that's not the point of this particular warning. The point of this particular warning is not just that God has provided for them, but that this is the most unique provision that has existed in the history of mankind. That there has never up till this point been a moment at which a God drew for himself a people out of another nation in which he took slaves and made them a free nation of their own, separate and apart, having victory coming out of persecution in this manner. Never before has there been a God who said, I want this group of people who are lowly, enslaved, really in many ways, as far as the world is concerned, worthless. And that will be my people. No God had done that, let alone the only God. The one who was above all, the one who had created all things, took for himself a nation of slaves to make a people for himself. This is singular. You see, there are a lot of nations that could say, you know what, we've been particularly prosperous this last year. Our flocks were booming, just absolutely healthy. Every lamb had two, two ewes, and, or every ewe had two lambs. Right? That would be the right way to, yeah, there we go. Uh, every ewe had two lambs, and our, our heads of grain produced a hundredfold. And in addition to that, the rains came when we wanted them, and the second that we said we're done with the rain, it went away. And then we didn't complain like Oregonians about not having the one we didn't have. What ends up happening here is that God says, yeah, you could, you could say that I've provided for you the way that it seems some other gods might have provided for them. You might even recognize still that I'm the one that provided for you, and that's all well and good. But I don't want you to be confused about the difference between good fortune that other nations might have and they attribute to their gods and this singular story that I am telling in you. Look back and ask yourself, has it ever happened? Has it ever been like this before? Is there any account in which God has taken for himself a people so lowly, so disregarded by their neighbors, so undervalued in every, maybe not even undervalued, so appropriately valued by their neighbors at such a low status and said, yes, that is is my people. That is the nation I'm going to found. Those are the people I will go in to the promised land with to bring righteousness and redemption. In those moments where you maybe doubt the story as it's been told, ask yourself, is there any way that this story could be true other than the miraculous intervention of the God Most High. Don't think that you have done this yourself. 
don't think that there's some other nation out there that can say that they've achieved this by their false god. To me, this entire section of scripture is an encapsulation of the gospel story. Now first, I want to be clear. Everything that Moses says here is not just true of the people he's preaching to. It is true of the preacher himself. I want you to think about the story of Moses and his encounter with God. Where does Moses first encounter Yahweh? Now, I want to be clear, there is a possibility he was taught about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as a small child being nursed by his own actual mother. That is a strong possibility. But he doesn't encounter Yahweh until he's out in the wilderness and a burning bush appears to him. And a voice comes out of the fire, calls him for a special purpose, and takes a man who's just a shepherd, really, actually, a convict shepherd, potential convict, a fleeing murderer shepherd, and says, hey, you know that country you ran away from, where maybe at one point in time you had some power? Well, now... I want you, the man who fled for his life, to go back and stand before the king and tell him you're taking a people out of his nation. Now, of course, Moses is hyper-aware of the ways in which he is entirely inadequate for this job. (laughs) I don't speak so well. Uh, I've got a little bit of a lisp here. You know, I'm not really that impressive. I'm not a great speaker. Uh, You know, how how am I even going to identify that this is what happened? Let me be clear how this is going to happen, Moses. I am that I am is going to do this. It's not about you and your ability. The one who's speaking to you from the fire, whose form you don't see, all you know is that there is something miraculous happening here. I'm going to do this. I am going to take you into this land. And I am going to give you victory over numbers that are far greater than your own, over power and influence that is far greater than your own, over someone who's got a whole pantheon of gods that they worship that may right now in this moment seem far greater than your own. But you know what? I am the God you didn't know before. And you will be able to only attribute this victory to me. Moses' story and Israel's story is remarkably similar. I'd encourage you to read through this chapter over the course of the week and ask yourself, how many of the things that Moses preaches to the people apply to him specifically? Because I think that God has trained Moses in order to speak to a people who are in many ways just like him. They are stubborn, they are rebellious, and sometimes they're prone to forget the holiness of the God that they serve. But they are the people that God chose. Now this morning, I want us to think about ourselves. See, I've, I've drawn a couple of comparisons between Moses and the writers of the epistles this kind of pastoral heart. I want to share with my people, God's people, the truth that God intends for them. I want them to understand what their own proclivities are, and I want them to really fight against the struggle that's going to exist inside of them. I want them to overcome 
so that they might be a light to the people around them. Now listen to these words from Paul. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my, my absence. Is Paul leaving these people? Is he getting ready to go away? He's already physically gone from them. Not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, I want to I stop here for a minute because I have for a long time really wrestled with this passage. It has not always been immediately clear to me what is being spoken about because Paul is very clear all across his writings that grace is what saves us, that it is by Christ that the grace of God has given us salvation. And yet here Paul uses this phrase that we translate as work out your own salvation. And for me, I, I, I don't know about you, but when I read that word work out, to me, it implies effort. It implies me putting my hand to the grindstone and really getting something done. It implies going and running on the treadmill, which I obviously don't like to do a whole lot. It implies this idea that there is something to be achieved by our own effort. I'm going to tell you this morning, I think most English translations have done us a disservice with this phrase, work out your own salvation. When I read this passage, especially in the last week, something that I have come to the conclusion on is that Paul, I think, is really trying to hyperlink back to the book of Deuteronomy, to the experience of the Israelite people at the foot of Mount Sinai. Remember, you didn't see a form. And yet, as the mountain shook, you were shaking with fear and trembling. You were encountering something that was beyond your ability to grasp. This voice coming out of the fire. But you were already saved. The fear and the trembling was not what saved the Israelite people. Having been saved, they stood in the presence of the voice of God and the fire on the mountain and the smoke all around them, this formless, incomprehensible God that was so difficult to grasp and yet so very present and real, who was working great and wondrous things in their presence. And they shook and trembled at the foot of the mountain. I think what Paul is trying to tell us is, hey, try to wrap your mind around this. Having been saved, try and, try and work it out. The greatness of the God who has done this for you. You're already obeying, but remember why. When I'm gone, don't think that you were just trying to serve me. Don't think that you were trying to please Paul. Please the God that you shake and tremble before because he is so magnificent and marvelous. And hear those words one more time that he, he flows into. For it is God who works 
in you. Moses tells the people, when you go into that land and you live righteously and holy, maybe the idol you might build for yourself is yourself. Because the other nations are going to say, has there ever been a nation so righteous and holy with laws so just? Isn't that amazing? And Moses cautions them, remember, your righteousness, your justice, those things are only the result of the presence of your God who is so near to you. Some of us think that what's going to end up happening is we'll leave here today and we'll go out into the world this week and we'll spend time with our friends and neighbors and if we mess up in some way, shape, or form, people are going to attribute that to God. Well, you know, this week... Uh, Chris really bit the big one. He just, you know, biffed it hard, and uh, he, he lost his temper with his neighbor, and, and that means that God is unrighteous and impure, and, and as a result, I don't want to have anything to do with him. That's a possibility. I might offend someone so badly that they discount God entirely. But I think the greater danger is that I go out and I live a really righteous and holy-looking life, and I forget to attribute it to the one who has made me righteous and holy. And my friends and neighbors see me love my wife well, love my children well, pay my taxes on time, do a good job of making sure that my yard gets mowed properly, that my sprinklers go off at the right time of day so I'm not wasting water, that uh, you know, I drive a clean and efficient vehicle, and, and I say, look how good and righteous I am. Isn't it wonderful that I am such a holy person? Come and live amongst me so that you might learn my laws and my statutes and my way of being. Maybe they live a little bit like I do. But they never come to know the God who saves. I want to encourage each of us to work out our, our, our salvation with fear and trembling. How wonderful it is that the God of all creation has worked wonders in me. And that any failing I might have, any shortcoming that I might have can completely be attributable to myself, but any righteousness I have, any good, anything that someone might point and say, wow, have you ever known someone to love their family and their neighbors so well as this? I would say it's only because the God of the universe has loved me well, that he has saved me and carried me out of darkness into light. I want to pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to be righteous, but not by our own power so that we might boast or brag or say how wonderful we are. But instead, we want to wholeheartedly admit that we are not impressive apart from the God that we serve. It's not that you haven't made us in, in wondrous ways. It's not that we are not well-formed. It's not that we are, are worthless uh, at, at, at the core. But Father, that any righteousness that we may have, any good that we may have, all of the beautiful and wonderful ways in which we are knit together, those began with you. And all the ways in which we have maybe unraveled ourselves 
It is only by you that they are knit back together. And so, Father, we pray that as we go into our world, as we interact with our friends and neighbors, our loved ones, our families, that we would be righteous and point to the one who has made us such. It's all this that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, if you have need of the church, if you want to walk alongside uh, your brothers and sisters in Christ and have them walk alongside you so that we might support one another in being the righteous people of God by his work, by his power, and that we don't forget who it is that has called us out of bondage, the wonderful, beautiful God who has restored us, I want to encourage you to meet me at the back of the auditorium this morning. I'll be there. I'd be happy to pray with you, to walk alongside you. Our elders are here today, and they'd be happy to visit with you. And we have some ladies here this morning, if that would be more comfortable for you, who would be happy to pray with you as well. I'm going to ask that you join us as we stand and sing.